Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Mythgard Academy. This is session number 14 of The Nature of Middle-Earth. Uh, and tonight, it's going to be all about telepathy. Uh, I really tried to get up to uh, chapter 11 or 12 in my planning, but man, holy cow, chapter 9, um, that long essay is seriously one of the coolest, most rewarding things to read of like Tolkien's later essays like I'd put it up there with almost anything in Unfinished Tales like I loved that thing so we're totally gonna dig in and uh, spend some time uh, uh, yeah yeah so anyway uh, just a uh, real quick announcement I just wanted to remind folks that uh, Mythmoot uh, we have um, uh, a bunch of things posted now with Mythmoot we have guests of honor we have uh, the call for papers um, still time to uh, uh, submit that stuff but um, the early bird pricing runs out at the end of January so we're starting to approach that so I just wanted to make sure uh, that folks are well aware of that also the other a uh, little piece of Mythmoot news is that the Mythmoot merch store is open. If you are interested in getting your Mythmoot t-shirt or something like that uh, in advance of the Moot, um, the uh, Mythmoot, our Mythmoot store on Redbubble is open uh, with this year's Mythmoot design, which is pretty cool. So uh, definitely wanted to invite you to look at that. And now let's start. Do you get that? I, I was trying. Um, I, I that might not have worked. And Stephen, you're right that um, it might be boring for people to watch an entirely telepathic class session later on on YouTube because although Tolkien says that the um, uh, although Tolkien says that distance is no barrier. He didn't say that time was no barrier, did he? So I think that, yeah, asynchronous viewing of the telepathic uh, class discussion would probably be kind of boring. I don't think that that would work. Um, and anyway, as I suspect all of us here uh, to in fact be incarnates, um, I think it wasn't working very well. Um, yeah, yeah, and I agree recording of previous telepathic experience does probably leave something out. Um, but uh, anyway, so since that failed, I'll try in words uh, for the rest of class tonight. Uh, let me start off with, oh man, yeah, Mary says the Asanwe Kenta is along with the Athrobeth, my favorite Tolkien uh, work. Uh, man, holy cow. Um, the Asanwe Kenta just, I love it. I love it so much. Um, and I can't wait to talk about it. Um, I'm going to get as far as we can in it today. We're, we're That's chapter nine of part two. We're starting with chapter eight. We're going to do a little bit of part eight uh, with chapter two. But um, uh, we're going to, um, we're going to, we're totally going to spend most of class tonight on chapter nine on the Asanwe Kenta. Um, so, all right. First though, one quick note. <clears throat> I got a wonderful, um, I, I got a wonderful uh, email uh, from Signum alum Alyssa House Thomas, uh, who has been following along with us. And as is her wont, she made a brilliant observation. 
Taking into account your comment that Tolkien's artistic mode was primarily that of a painter, I may have incidentally discovered evidence that Tolkien's letter to Patricia F. on the beardlessness of elves and royal line Dunedine represents a later conception not present during the composition of The Lord of the Rings. Of the vandalized kingly statue in Journey to the Crossroads, we read the following description. The eyes were hollow and the carven beard was broken. Carven beard? I think that if Tolkien had been questioned on this during his lifetime, he may have introduced further story elements to explain it, maybe saying that artistically the august authority of the Gondorian kings might be represented by beards they did not in fact possess, like the Egyptian pharaohs and their false beards. What would be more likely, considering the, the cultural parallels to Egypt Tolkien drew elsewhere about the tomb cult, the shape of the Gondorian winged crown, etc.? But bearing in mind J.R.R.T.'s strongly visual imagination, I would read the crossroads scene as an indication that at the time of writing, he saw no problem with bearded Numenorean descendants. Um, absolutely. I think she's completely nailed this one. Um, I would almost go so, <clears throat> go so far as to call the bearded... Uh, Stone King uh, at the crossroads, something like a smoking gun, uh, something like proof, basically, that uh, uh, that in his imagination at that time, he was indeed imagining the king's bearded. Now, that doesn't necessarily prove that he was imagining Aragorn bearded, right? I mean, he says that he does not, he does not think that Aragorn has a beard, right? Um, so I don't think that we can necessarily say that, but... Um, but I agree with her. I mean, the, 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 the bearded kings, that seems to be a thing, right? She is certainly correct that um, if Tolkien had been asked about it, he would not merely have said he changed his mind. He would have come up with some story about why, despite the fact that the kings were obviously beardless, um, they would have carved a bearded king. Uh, so, yeah, no, I'm, I, she's completely right about that. Um, but this does seem right. And... What could be more likely? I mean, in some ways, you know, one of the things that I was thinking um, in response to Alyssa's email, Tolkien seems, don't you get the impression when you read his letters that often when people ask him questions, the answer takes shape at the moment? Like he'd never actually thought of it at all. Like, it, it, you know, he, he didn't have an answer. It's not like he knew the answer and he only just comes out with it when someone asks, right? Somebody asks, and then as soon as they ask, like, he discovers the answer, right, when he goes to respond to it. Um, and I suspect that that's kind of a thing that happened here. I, you know, the, especially the way that the whole digression about the stewards and everything comes out of that fairly simple response about, like, you know, Patricia F. just wanting to know whether or not, you know, Aragorn had a beard, right? Um, uh, and, you know, he ends up on this whole digression, which has all of that sense of discovery, right? Not only of, dis of like, the discovery of a thing, but the sudden thinking through of the, ramif the ramifications of that thing, right? Um, and working out what this means, not just for kings, right, but for, like, the history of Gondor and everything else. Um, so, um, uh, so anyway, I, um, uh, I think that it is, um, very likely, it seems very likely to me that he had never really consciously formulated in his own mind the thought, elves don't have beards, therefore Numenorean kings don't have beards, therefore the line of Gondorian kings would all have been beardless. 
um, as well as those of the ruling stewards who were from the royal house. Um, I, I get, again, like th that letter, that response has all, to me, all of the earmarks of that sort of a spontaneous discovery. We see him doing this spontaneous discovery at many points in his drafting, in his letters. Um, and, uh, uh, and I think that, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's, it seems to me that his reference to the carven beard on the statue of the king uh, at the crossroads um, is like, that, you know, that was like his, it does show a kind of like default imagination, right? Um, but without having thought it through, right, without having gone down this particular chain of reasoning, he was totally picturing a bearded king. But then as soon as somebody asked the question, he's like, no, Aragorn doesn't have a beard. And in fact, none of them have beards. And in fact, there are reasons why none of them have beards. And off he goes, right? Um, and um, uh, and absolutely, uh, uh, Jocelyn, um, it is the best part of being a teacher, having questions put to you that makes you think up cool stuff in response. Absolutely. Why do you think I do this? Right. I, I mean, that is what is so rewarding um, about, you know, why I have learned so much over the years teaching all of the Tolkien stuff I've been teaching uh, through these classes is that I, I don't know uh, most of what I'm going to say <laughs> before I say it. Um, and many, many times, of course, I've had that experience of somebody asking a question and, you find yourself answering and um, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how many teachers have this experience. Probably you do, but like, you know, when you're like talking, answering a question that somebody asked, but like part of your mind is detached and saying, Hmm, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> what my mouth is now saying. I never thought of that before. Um, and yeah, yeah, that's, um, uh, that's, I think um, it seems, to, I, I think likely, to be a, uh, um, a common teacherly experience. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, anyway, um, oh yeah, here's Chad trying to convince people that, uh, he does think before he says things, which Chad, it's going to be a hard sell. I've got to tell you. Uh, but anyway, Okay. So thank you, Alyssa. That is a, a wonderful observation. Uh, and I think um, that's, um, uh, I think, I think you, you've nailed it. Okay. On to chapter eight, or chapter seven, sorry. Okay. This is the passage that I was building up to last time. We just have to do it. The High Elves distinguished clearly between Fonar, the physical raiment adopted by the spirits in self-incarnation as a mode of communication with the incarnates, and other modes of communication between minds that might take visual form. Footnote. In The Lord of the Rings, a notable example is provided by the Astari who appeared among elves and men in the likeness of old men. Um, this is my subtitle on this slide, is please don't. Professor um, Tolkien, I would have, I, I, I was tempted to say Tolkien would never have said this if he'd had a Twitter account. Um, I don't know how m many times in the last 12 years I have answered questions about the incarnation of the wizards and uh, so much of what I have tried to explain over the years hinges upon the distinction that he several times makes, Tolkien several times makes in his writings, between 
the bodily shape that the Valar can put on, right? The, ra- the, the raiment of flesh that they can put on and take off, and the incarnation of the Astari. That the Astari are just in a different um, category. Like, the incar- what happened with the Astari like, was just not the same thing as when a Valar puts on flesh. And so, as soon as he... Um, and so to, when Tolkien is like, so yeah, I, um, there's the physical raiment adopted by the spirits in self-incarnation. Footnote, you know, just like the Astari did. And I'm like, no, don't, please don't muddy those waters. Like you've made a clear distinction. Uh, uh, please, please don't confuse that. I think I'm seeing the direction that he's moving in, though. So we'll come back to this later on when we see some more things. But I'm just, for now, I'm skipping over this like I never saw it. <laughs> because I'm telling you, boy, this is going to make everybody's life harder. Um, but here's, here's, here's the consolation I give myself. Um, the consolation I give myself is that um, this isn't... He's not taking away from the concept of the incarnation of the Astari. What he's doing is beginning to think more seriously about the raiment adopted by the Valar and the Maiar in self-incarnation. Um, so that it, he's not pulling back on the incarnation of the Astari, but rather he's putting some new strictures in place. Basically, he's making the physical manifestation of the Valar and the Maiar more meaningful, right? The first time I read this passage, and I got a little upset last week, <laughs> I was, uh, I was, that's how I was hearing it. Like, that he was, he was going to start, like, fudging, uh, you know, or hedging, I guess I should say, uh, on the, uh, on the Istari, but I don't think that that's what he's doing. I think that he's taking that as a sort of fixed point, and instead he's bringing the Valar more in line to that. And that would make more sense. That would make more sense, and I would be, um, I would be okay with that. The reason why I think it's important, like the reason why, is that as he discusses in the essay on the Astari in Unfinished Tales, the Astari, like, they can die. Like, I mean, like, they're at risk. It, Gandalf is seriously in danger of being killed. He expects to be killed by the goblins and the wargs. Um, uh, you know, and that, of course, would have been the end of him, says the narrator when Gandalf is thinking of hurling himself down uh, like a thunderbolt among the goblins. Um, and um, anyway, so I, it's different. Yes, the physical form of the um, of the Maiar and Valar can also be slain, but perhaps, and perhaps that's the problem. Perhaps that's the problem, right? Um, and maybe actually, yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. I will see this as making my job easier, not as making my job harder. Rather than making it harder to explain Gandalf and Saruman, this makes it easier to explain what happens to Sauron on Mount Doom the first time. I mean, I'll get the end of the Second Age, right? Uh, the War of the Last Alliance. Um, when Isildur loots his corpse, right? Um, a lot of people had a hard time understanding how can um, uh, how can he die? 
like, you know, if he's not really incarnate, how can he die, right? And I think that that's... My suspicion now is that that's kind of the direction um, the direction that he's going. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so... I think that's okay. Now, I know, Michael, that in the context, he's just focusing on distinguishing between communication that needs physical intermediation and that which doesn't. I, I know that's what he's setting up, right? But <laughs> I just want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, if you know what I mean. Uh, that was kind of my, uh, my, my concern. Now, um, somebody was asking a very relevant question. Um, uh, sorry, I forget um, um, who was asking it. Um, but about, uh, oh yeah, there it was. Edith was asking, um, are the Istari self-incarnated? Well, no, they're externally, um, externally incarnated. Uh, right. I mean that others, they were incarnated by the Valar, right? So they're not, again, it's, again, it's, they're not in the same state. That's why I was, I got alarmed when this footnote seems to just kind of put them all in the same category. Right. Um, but, Anyway, I think, I think we'll get there. I think we'll get there. Um, all right. But let's look at the, um, his first discussion of non-physical communication and see how this works. This is not the same as the telepathy we're going to get to. But, okay. They held that a superior mind by nature, or one exerting itself to its full in some extremity of need, could communicate a desired vision direct to another mind. The receiving mind would translate this impulse into the terms familiar to it from its use of the physical organs of sight and hearing and project it, seeing it as something external. It thus much resembled a fauna, that uh, external manifestation, right? Except that in most cases, especially those concerned with minds of less power, either as communicators or receivers, it would frequently be less vivid, clear, or detailed and might even be vague or dim or appear half-transparent. So first of all, let's make sure that we're understanding the, the distinction that he's making, right? He's distinguishing between... So um, say you have a vision. Okay, here's a, here's a, a couple scenarios, right? You're an elf king, right? You're taking a hike, you're having a nap next to a river, and the next thing you know, you are having a vision of Olmo, who is communicating to you, right? Recommending maybe you should look into, maybe you should diversify your real estate portfolio, right? That's scenario number one. Scenario number two, you are an outcast human prince. You found your way to the beach, which is cool. Who doesn't like the beach? And it's actually um, not very crowded that day on the beach, though you're not quite alone, as it turns out. Um, and this huge figure rises up out of the waves uh, and tells you to save the world. Um, you've got these, that's scenario number one, scenario number two, right? Um, what happened? How do you tell the difference? Right. Olmo has appeared, has communicated to both of them. Right. 
in both cases, you have a superior mind, the mind of the Vala, uh, communicating with one of the incarnate races, right? In the former, in situation one, well, no, I'll start with two. In situation two, Olmo is himself appearing, right? He is putting, he is creating a fauna for himself, right? Again, if we go back to that definition, he's explaining the fauna are the physical raiment adopted by the spirits. So the, um, the, that those are the bodies, right? They're not Hroa. They're not like material bodies made from the stuff of Arda. They are physical, they are manifestations formed by the minds of the Valar in order to communicate, uh, uh, to appear visibly and audibly and interact with the with uh, uh, the incarnates, right? So that's what Olmo does when he appears to Tuor at the beach. His, it is his own fauna, his own form, which is appearing. And through that form, in that form, he's speaking, right? Um, quite notably, uh, quite memorably uh, to Tuor. Turgon, however, um, has a vision, right? Also receives a communication from Olmo, but Olmo does not appear. So, you know, if Olmo appears, if like in his vision, he sees Olmo, right? Basically, Tolkien is trying to say, like, what's the difference? What's the difference between those two? In both cases, you have one of the Valar who don't have bodies natively, right? They are spiritual beings. They are communicating. They are trying to connect with um, and they're do- both in both cases, they're doing so both audio, both audially and verbal and, and not and verbally and visually. Right. There's both an audio and a visual manifestation in order to establish communication, you know, establish an appearance and a communication. Right. That's true in both cases, but it's not the same in one. One is just a vision. One is just a, 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 a message that is projected into the mind directly of the recipient, Turgon's dream, in this case. The other is an actual manifestation that appears to their actual waking eyes and ears. Why is this so confusing? Why do you have to make a distinction? Like, don't you know the difference between a dream and waking? No, not in this case, right? If you were the one having the vision from Olmo, that is not having Tours experience, but if you were having Turgon's experience, you might well confuse it. As, uh, as he says here, um, the, the, the vision, the, the receiving mind would translate this impulse, so the message you're receiving from Olmo, you would translate this into the terms familiar to it from its use of the physical organs of sight and hearing to project it, seeing it as something external. You would experience it as if it were happening outside. You wouldn't be like... A thought has been implanted in my head by Olmo, right? You would see and hear a vision of Olmo. That's what it would look like to you. So if you were undiscerning or had had no previous experience with visions uh, from the Valar, you might not know, right? There would have to be empirical tests you would have to perform. It's going to look very similar. So that's why he's trying to distinguish and explain what is it that makes these two things differently. So he says, it thus must resemble the fauna, except that in most cases, so how do you tell the difference? In most cases, especially those concerned with minds of less power, so again, Olmo to you, either as communicators or receivers, it would frequently be less vivid, clear, or detailed, and might even be vague or dim or appear half-transparent. So 
two hours experience. There's not anything um, vague, dim, or half transparent about two hours experience, right? Um, he is um, uh, he is seeing uh, he is seeing Olmo appear before him live in full color, right? It is an HD experience that he is having there on the beach. But if you were receiving that in a dream, right, um, it might be vague or dim or half transparent um, because your receiving mind is a mind of like, you know, um, Olmo might be sending out an HD signal, but your mind is is only an SD receiver, right? I mean, like you 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 can't get the HD um, the HD thing. Now, Mary asks, "Is this fairy and drama?" Um, I no, it's not. Um, fairy and drama is art, not communication. Exactly right, um, but it's very similar, Mary. I mean, that is the the way in which things are being communicated to you and you perceive it outside yourself. Um, Fairy and drama is not what he's talking about, but I, I do believe that this mechanism that he's describing is the same one that he was alluding to, like, or rather the effect upon the receiver is, is, is very similar in that way. Yes. Um, and so in that case too, you have a superior mind and a lesser mind in that case, an elf and a human. Elves are definitely superior minds, and the humans are the lesser minds. Um, and when they are communicating to you, uh, probably, uh, at least partially, telepathically, um, you are going to project it outwards, and you perceive it and can mistake it for reality. Not necessarily, but you could. You might mistake it for reality. Um, uh yeah, yeah. And Ilana, you're right. Um, Ilana is remembering the message that Faramir and Boromir get, right? The vision that they see um, and the voice that they hear. Vague, dim, half transparent. Yeah, it was it was it was kind of vague. It wasn't a very clear picture. It wasn't, um, uh, you know, it's kind of grainy. Have to move the rabbit ears around a little bit. Sorry. Sorry. I know I just lost half the audience who doesn't have any idea what that is. Um, well, many of you are old enough to know what I'm talking about, but yeah, in, in any case, yes, I think that's a really good illustration, uh, of this kind of thing. Um, but, um, okay. Anyway, well, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's keep going. These visions were in Quenya called Indemar, mind pictures. Men were receptive of them, according to the records of the time, mostly when presented to them by the elves. To receive them from another human being required a special urgency of occasion and a close connection of kinship, anxiety, or love between the two minds. So this kind of um, this kind of mind picture, projection of a mind picture, can happen. And so, Mary, again, I come back to the fairy and drama thing, right? It's like um, uh, it's like um, uh, the fairy and drama in that way. Um, uh, now, Brian is asking, how do you avoid the potential for this to be deceptive to the lesser mind, particularly one not familiar with this mode of communication when that should not be the intent? Exactly. That's a big problem, right? Um, in fact, as he's going to go on to talk about, in any case, in Demar were, were by men, mostly received in sleep as dreams. If received when bodily awake, they were usually vague and phantom-like and often caused fear. But if they were clear and vivid, 
the Indemar induced by elves might, uh, sorry, as the Indemar induced by elves might be, they were apt to mislead men into taking them as real things beheld by normal sight. Though this deceit was never intentional on the part of the elves, it was often by them, i.e. the men, believed to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, good, David. Ilanel uh, would be an example. Um, the the, the uh, uh, Gorlim seeing, thinking he sees Ilanel, right, would have been uh, deliberately deceptive in Demar, right? Uh, projected into his mind by Sauron, presumably. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I also am remembering, um, Ilana thinking of Faramir, Faramir's vision of the boat, right? Um, Boromir in the boat, which he could have physically seen, um, but probably didn't. I, I suspect that could well have been a projected, uh, thought, a projected vision, um, and yes, Nancy points out that this is why all the Rohirrim were terrified of Galadriel. Yeah, sure, sure. Because um, look, there's... Um, as Galadriel herself half confesses, the difference between her magic and Sauron's magic largely is the intention, right? Um, uh, she is a little bit confused by the fact that hobbits seem to use the same word of elf magic and of the deceits of the enemy. But the word deceit is the really critical one there, right? Yeah, okay. Yes, Galadriel, if you take the intentions, uh, then, okay, sure, they're different. But um, even there, well, I'll get there and explore in the Lord of the Rings someday. Um, but um, I don't know, Senelisha, who Faramir's vision would be projected by any more than I know whom his dream was sent by. Exactly. Um, but somebody uh, f from the dream, we know for a fact that somebody is sending messages to Faramir, right? Somebody's, somebody's put themselves in that business, right? Um, and if they did it once, they might do it again. Uh, I don't, um, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's there's no direct evidence. I, yeah, I, David Michael Roberts, you're you're sure right that uh, um, Olmo has to be high on the suspect list. I think, especially as you say, because it it involves the river. Um, but um, uh, but yeah. Anyway, we don't we don't have any way of knowing. Okay, so this is his first sort of earlier gesture um, at the um, uh, this whole mind pictures thing. Um, and a bit about forms of knowing. This was really interesting. This, of course, you'll notice right away that in this little essay, he's focused primarily linguistically. That is, he's talking about Elvish linguistics. He's talking about the kinds of words that they use for things, right? What these words mean when they are used by an elf, right? Um, and I, I found this Everything tonight is completely fascinating. I just love all this stuff. The Eldar hold some things for certain. They therefore know or assert things when the evidence or authority is sufficient for certainty. Okay, so when an elf says, I know this or I assert this, that means they're 100%. They're completely confident that it is correct. They judge and have an opinion 
when the evidence is sufficient to consider with reason or the authority worthy of attention, but incomplete or not compulsive, right? So um, I'm trying to give, uh, let's try to think of an example of um, authority that is worthy of attention, but not compulsive. So like if the Valar tell you this is how it was, right? If, the, if, the, if, if, you're, if you're listening to Varda tell you the story of the Ainu Lindale, I think you can say you know what happened in the Ainu. I, I think the Eldar would say, we're going to put this in the knowledge category, right? But if somebody who should be taken seriously hmm, you know what immediately what just, what just occurred to me? Saruman's assertion of the ring rolling down the river to the sea. Um, I think that Sauron was, um, I think that Sauron was, or sorry, Saruman, rather, was manipulating these different levels. That he was trying to pass off as an assertion, like he was certain that this happened based on evidence or on authority, right? That he knew this and that this is why Gandalf was one of the reasons that Gandalf takes so long, right? To Gandalf, Gandalf judged that the One Ring was out of commission. Right? He didn't know it necessarily, because he was getting it at least secondhand from Saruman. But the authority that he had that information on, that the One Ring was at the bottom of the ocean and um, had been taken out of the Middle Earth scenario, right? That knowledge was from an, an authority worthy of attention, but not compulsive. That's why eventually, when enough evidence accumulated and it needed a bunch of evidence, Right, um, when a bunch of evidence accumulated, he was willing to, um, you know, move on from that. Right. Um, oh, cool. Christopher's pointing out that yeah, um, Elrond. Uh, you may remember Elrond judges that the younger of these two, Peregrine Took, should remain. Right. He judges that. That's his opinion. Um, uh, the evidence, I think, was sufficient to consider with reason. Right. Um, but he didn't know. He wasn't. He didn't. Claim, he wasn't asserting that it would be like a disaster if Pippin came, right? But he was judging that. So it's strong, but it's um, it's not it's not absolute. Um, okay. Oh, cool. Ilana is saying this is precisely what she does her linguistic research on human forms of knowing and how these are packaged into linguistic expressions across human cultures uh, and how we use them in social interaction. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. That's um, um, yeah, that, that's what I guess. That's what I, I found this fascinating, even though it's not my area of research. But yeah, very cool. OK, so, so then he says when the evidence is very incomplete and there is no authority, they suppose or surmise when the evidence is too incomplete for reasonable inference or is not known, they guess. Okay, so surmising or supposing is stronger than guessing, right? So we've, we've, we've got a clear hierarchy of knowing here, right? 
so let's see. Can we think of a Lord of uh, a Lord of the Rings example for supposing or surmising? When does somebody suppose or surmise in the Lord of the Rings? Hmm. I can't think of any examples off the top of my head. Um. Oh, good. Christopher, your memory is excellent. I suppose we had better do so, says Aragorn. Um, yes. I suppose we had better do so. Um, good. Sam supposes that Frodo is dead when he's wrapped in the web and unmoving. Ooh, Jocelyn, that's a really interesting one. That's a surmise on Sam's part, probably. The evidence is very incomplete and there is no authority. He's not guessing, right? He's not taking a wild stick. Frodo alive or dead? Ah, I don't know. Flip a coin. Guess he's dead, right? Yeah, he's not doing. He's not guessing, right? Um, but he's not exactly judging either, right? Um, I mean, when Sam starts castigating himself for this afterwards, right, um, and uh, uh, availing himself of the gaffer's paternal word hoard, um, he is. It sounds to me accusing himself of surmising when he should have judged, right? Um, he did not collect sufficient evidence. Um, he was led to believe in a surmise instead of, uh, instead of getting closer uh, to knowledge. Um, yes, yes. Oh, that's interesting. Michael suggests Frodo accepting Aragorn. Um, yeah. Yeah, when Frodo decides that he's going to trust Aragorn in Bree. That is a surmise. He has no... I mean, you could say as Gandalf's authority, but as Sam points out, um, he could have done in the real Strider and taken his clothes, right? So um, there is no proof. Gandalf's letter is not proof that that dude standing in front of them is the Aragorn that Gandalf was talking about. Um, but yes, the looking foul and feeling fair thing, Carrie, that would be um, um, too incomplete for reasonable inference. No, that would be very incomplete evidence, right? Not no evidence, but very incomplete evidence. Yeah, yeah, I think looks foul and feels fair um, is a surmise. Yeah. Uh, Christopher's asking, I wonder where deeming fits into this scheme. I think deeming is judging. I, I, if you deem a doom, I think you're judging or having an opinion. You're not claiming to know, right? Um, but I think you're definitely doing more than surmising uh, in, this, uh, in, that, in that instance. Um, yeah, yeah. Good. Cecilia's saying that Aragorn guesses what happens to the hobbits after the fellowship breaks up. Um, yeah, you know what I wonder, Cecilia? I think Gandalf surmises that Frodo went to Mordor alone. That is, he had knowledge of what was in Frodo's head. He was, uh, he was in Frodo's head, right, on Amon Hen, when Frodo was on Amon Hen, right? So he knows that Frodo resolved to go alone, but he didn't know, 
um, that Sam also came with him, as uh, uh, the as Aragorn and Legos and can we point out. Um, so um, he uh, he knew what Frodo's intention was, but he only surmised that Frodo followed successfully followed through on that intention, right? And that turned out to be wrong. Um, Gandalf uses the word guess very importantly in the context of the ring. As we, when did I first begin to guess? Remember, he asks Frodo rhetorically um, in the Shadow of the Past. When did I first begin to guess? Um, and he starts going back over the shadow that fell in his heart back in the time of the Hobbit, right at the time of uh, the, the Battle of Five Armies. Um, evidence too incomplete for reasonable inference. Whereas, on the other hand, he had the opinion which he had received from Saruman in the White. Um, yes. Um, Brian, what a fascinating question. I don't know that I want to get into that right now, but it strikes me as a fascinating question. Brian's asking, how do Estelle and Amdir overlay this matrix? Right. Um, how does how do the different le, le, layers or levels of hope um, coincide with or you know interact with the different levels of knowing, right? Um, because of course, Brian, in the one sense, um, in the one sense, it's not a um, it's not a form of knowing, right? Um, Hope, by definition, is opposed to knowledge, right? I mean, if you know, um, I mean, here I'm quoting the Apostle Paul, right? You know, if we know, then, you know, why do we yet hope? Um, uh, hope is about a future thing that is unknown, by, by definition. If uh, uh, Knowledge replaces hope, basically, right? Hope is displaced uh, by, uh, by knowledge. Um, but, um, yeah. Ooh, Amy, great point. Amy Rye says, um, how about Frodo in the Mithril Coat? Bilbo fancied it would turn the swords of the Ringwraiths. Yeah, I think that's a surmise. Sounds to me like a surmise that Bilbo has there. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. That sounds like a surmise to me. That's a great example. That's cool. Very cool. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, I don't want to talk too much about the hope thing, not because I'm not interested in it, because I totally am, but it's, it's a total side topic and it's not the subject of this passage. So we should, let's talk about this later. Again, like, um, uh, sounds like a uh, fun discussion to have at a moot, frankly. But let's keep going. Okay. They distinguish all these, also all those forms of knowing, from divining, which is neither guessing nor feigning. Oh, wait, hang on a second. Did I skip some? I didn't finish that, did I? No, I didn't. Hang on. I, I, let me finish the passage. Okay. All right. Hang on. All right. Um, if it is not known, they guess. This last process, they do not usually distinguish from feign or pretend, save only in this, that guessing implies a wish to know and would use more evidence if that were available. It is intended to correspond as far as possible to fact, independent of the guessing mind. Whereas feigning appears, refers primarily to the mind itself and is rather an exercise or amusement of the mind 
independent of fact. Okay, so um, when you feign or pretend something, it might be a lot like guessing. And those two processes might be very similar, right? Um, there's speculation involved in both, right? But th that difference seems to me a really interesting and important difference, right? When you're guessing something, you want to know. Um, and if there were more evidence, you would use it and you would, you would gladly go from guessing to surmising, right? And thence up to judging and then knowing, right? Um, that would be your goal there for that thing. But if you're feigning something, like you just might be making up a story, right? Um, you don't need or want confirmation. Um, I, have a, I, have a funny, um, I have a funny example of this, not exactly from the Lord of the Rings, uh, but from my own broadcasts. Um, when I'm doing one of my Lord of the Rings online broadcasts, um, especially the field trips after exploring the Lord of the Rings, uh, in those field trips, I'm going around within the, the Lotro world and I'm looking at the evidence that's there, like in the ruins. We're looking at the ruins of Eregion right now, so I'm looking at the ruins of Eregion. And I am trying to, um, uh, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, right? I would have said, I was guessing what, um, what they mean, what they show. What does this tell us about the historical vision, right, of that particular adaptation? Like, according to the Lotro world, what was happening in Eregion in the Second Age? based on the evidence of the ruins that we see, right? But I, I realized, before I had this handy explanation uh, to hand, um, that what I'm doing when I do that is not guessing. It's feigning. I'm definitely feigning when I'm doing that. Um, and I know that this is true. I know that this is true uh, because... <laughs> Sorry, I was just receiving a message uh, from upstairs. Um, I know that this is true because I don't actually want to know. <laughs> to know. Like sometimes um, when, if there's like information in a local quest or something that tells us something about those ruins, I, I don't want to hear it, right? Or sometimes people will be like, we should ask the game developers and see what they thought. And I'm like, no, 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 don't want to know. I don't want to know. So I'm not, I'm totally not guessing. I'm feigning, right? I'm feigning. I am, uh, I am building up uh, a story, right? Based on the evidence that's there, but it's very incomplete evidence. Um, and, uh, and that's, and that's okay. Um, and yes, uh, 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 Karina, um, yes. Uh, the word fancy, I agree, would be like this as well. Fancy, um, has to do with imagination here. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, fancy comes from the same word, I believe, as fantasy, meaning imagination. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so, yeah, I am... Um, um, it is used in other contexts, Thistledown, as you say, um, uh, indicating interest in or attraction to something. Yeah, but that's just a, sort of a different application uh, of the word. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I feign, so that's my, that's my example for feigning. Um, I do a lot of feigning. Um, we do a lot of feigning in film film, for instance. Um, it's not exactly guessing, 
uh, it's feigning. Guessing, I agree. Guessing, uh, guessing is forming a hypothesis, which you want to prove or disprove, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, guessing, uh, hypothesizing is guessing. Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Um, uh, cool. Okay, all right. Isn't it, now, now we can move on to the next slide. They distinguish all these things from divining, which is neither guessing nor feigning, for they hold that the thea can arrive directly at knowledge or close to it without reasoning upon evidence or learning from living authority. Now, this is really interesting because um, here we get into, like, I was immediately thinking of medieval categories of knowing, um, which are really interesting to me from, you know, my medievalist days. Um, and, uh, of course, like, they would distinguish between reason and uh knowledge, like reason and intelligence, right? Um, they would talk about, like, basically when you, when you know something, you can know some, you can be certain about knowledge that you arrive at by reason, right? If the evidence is complete and the reasoning, you know, the steps of your reasoning are, um, you know, are, are, are unimpeachable, then you can be certain about your conclusion. Knowledge, reasoning can lead you to certainty, but that's different from intellectus that is different from just just knowing it right um, without reasoning without plotting step by step and this is uh, was something discussed by medieval theologians to try to explain the difference between human understanding and God's understanding right God just just knows stuff directly he has a he grasps everything at once he doesn't reason have to reason it out in time right. Um, so those are like two big categories that I have in my head that I've kind of, kind of like taken, inherited from the Middle Ages in my head. But this is the third thing. It's neither one of those things, right? Um, the other knowledge stuff is connected to reasoning, right, in that way. What he's talking about here is not exactly... At first, it sounds... It's, it's, I thought he was talking about intellectus. I thought he was talking about that kind of like, you, you just know, right? So that the elvish word for intellect, you know, for the verb form of intellectus, right, was divining. Um, but that's not, in fact, what he goes on to say, and that's what's so cool about this, right? For they hold that the thea can arrive directly at knowledge or close to it without reasoning upon evidence or learning from living authority. Okay, so they just, it's knowledge, intellectus, right? No. Though divining is, they say, truly only a swift mode of learning from authority, since the fea can only learn, apart from reasoning, by direct contact with other minds, or at the highest by inspiration from Eru. This is truly called divining. Like when you're divining from the divine? Yeah. Um, so what is this other form of knowledge? It's not actually different. It's only different in its mode of transmission, right? Uh, I mean, after all, knowing, right, if we go back to the first category, knowing and asserting, Right when you hold things, things for certain. When the authority is sufficient for certainty, so if somebody with sufficient authority tells you that this thing is so, if their authority is complete, right? If their authority is is uh, is high enough, then you would speak of that as knowledge, right? You know that thing to be true. Um, it's the same thing. This is divining is the same thing, except they didn't tell you. You just they communicated it directly to your mind. 
This contact can at times take place between embodied minds of the same order without bodily contact or proximity. So the most absolute, the most uh, extreme example of this kind of divining is when you, when uh, Iluvatar reaches out, right? When Iluvatar gets in touch uh, and inspires you with knowledge, okay, then you know it, right? You have uh, received communication from an 100% unimpeachable authority. You know that to be absolutely true, right? Um, remember, for instance, the tale of Adenel and the story of the, um, at, at the end of um, the um, Athrobeth, um, and the communication from Eru to the first set of men, right, um, before their fall, it, it's a big deal, right? Um, they did divine the truth of who Eru was and uh, how things were supposed to work. Um, okay. Um, so... Divining, yes. Um, uh, you can get this from the Valar, too. So Turgon would have been divining. Well, the dream, it's a, it's a, the mechanism's a little bit different there. But um, uh, anyway, so uh, you can get it not just from Eru directly. You can get it from others as well. So this contact can at times take place between embodied minds of the same order without bodily contact or proximity. Minds of a higher order, such as the Valar, including Melkor, can more easily influence those of a lower order, such as the Eldar, from afar. They cannot thus coerce or dictate, though they can inform and advise. This too, except at great need, they do only when the mind is of its consent or desire opened to them particularly as when one of the Eldar calls one of the Valar by name in some need or doubt. Generally, as when one of the Eldar places himself under the protection and guidance of Manwe or Varda or other Vala. So, if you were, I don't know, being stabbed by ringwraiths under some circumstances and you cried out to Elbereth, she might hear you and place you under her protection and or guidance, right? Um, that is a thing that can happen, right? Um, yes, yes. And good, there are a bunch of examples of this kind of, uh, of this kind of thing. Um, uh, yes, uh, Chris Bartlett talks about Finrod divining that he would not survive helping Baron. Right when he left uh, to to go with Baron and fulfill his uh, his vow, um, yeah, yeah, I think that that's um, I think that that's right. Um, uh, yeah, there are some foresight. It seems connected to foresight, right? But um, we'll come to that a little bit later. Let's wait to talk about foresight because we'll get there hopefully. Okay. Um, one more. One more, I think, before we get... No, two more. Okay. Some more... I don't want to shortchange Chapter 8, because it was cool, too, but, of course, it kind of pales beside the coolness of Chapter 9. All right. The occupations of the embodied mind awake are an obstacle to such contacts, lower or higher. So even a message from Iluvatar might be harder to perceive when you're awake. They occur, therefore, the Eldar say, most often in sleep, not in dreams... 
But dreaming and sleeping are to the elves other than to men. In sleep the body may, as in men, cease from all activities, save those essential to life, such as breathing. Or it may rest from this or that activity or function, as the Fea directs. While it is so, the mind may seek repose also, and be utterly quiet, but it may be absorbed in its own activity. Thinking, that is... Sorry, apologies. Um, that is, reasoning or remembering. Um, or devising and... Uh, or devising and designing. But these things are at will and of volition. Sorry, I apologize. The notification... I can't turn off my notification. This is... My wife's on call, and this is her phone, so I can't turn off her notifications. So I apologize if we get notifications uh, occasionally here. Um, okay, okay. So do you, do you see how that works? The mind is most receptive to any of these external messages when it is at rest, um, which means sleeping but not dreaming. So elves can rest all of the body in sleep, they can rest some of the body. I don't think that means, like, I'm going to rest my left leg right now, but rather I'm going to... Like, so Legolas could keep running across the plains while he was sleeping. So it's a little easy for Legolas to be like, we should not rest and sleep by night. We should keep running, right? Um, yeah, easy for you to say, buddy. Uh, you can sleep while you run. Um, he can keep his legs going while his mind and uh, the rest of his body rests. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and so he's going on to add, while they're asleep, while their body is resting or partially resting they can if they choose continue thinking like they the mind can so they can kind of like extract their mind from their surroundings and go on thinking reasoning or remembering or devising and designing but these things are at will and of volition like their 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 mind is actively working right so you're not gonna you're not gonna uh receive so many messages when you're doing that Right. Um, the state that, uh, the state that with the, oh, sorry, got it. The state that with the elves nearest resembles dreaming is when the mind is feigning or devising. It is when the mind is quiet and inactive that it most readily receives and perceives contact from without. So while you're, an elf is dreaming, when they're making up stories, Right when they're doing art, right, like narrative art or whatever, while their body is at rest, um, that's like dreaming, except they're in control of it. Right, it's feigning; it's not, uh, it's not involuntary. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So. Yeah, but again, quiet inactivity required for best reception, for um, best divining, right? Okay. There was one, and, and then I, I was really interested in this. Um, this is the beginning of a little theme in tonight's passages, and possibly next week's passages as well, about uh, Tolkien talking about language. He's talking about Elvish Rebirth. And you might think, if you're a philologist, 
that, or rather, if you're a philologist, you will certainly ask this question, right? Okay, an elf lives a life, dies, goes to Mandos, spends time in Mandos, and is reborn. So when they are reborn, retaining their earlier memories, they should start speaking in the dialect that they spoke in thousands of years ago, right? So if the language has changed around them, they're going to be speaking in this old dialect, right? Isn't that cool? I mean, that's, that's right. The, the, but Tolkien says, no, no, that's not how it worked with elves, right? There was one matter in which rebirth did not assist their lore, though this might be expected to be otherwise. This was the history and lore of language and the speech of bygone days. In such matters, the Eldar were dependent mostly, as are we, upon visible records, or upon the lore consciously stored in the minds of those concerned with the branch of history. If you want to be a philologist, you got to earn it, baby. You can't be born with philological knowledge. Even if you're an elf and have, you used to, you, like, your native tongue was a now obsolete dialect, right, uh, of, uh, you don't remember it. You don't wake up remembering that dialect. Why wouldn't that be? Why would you have to... Again, now, if you had in your previous life been a philologist, you might retain the knowledge that you gained during your previous philological career, right? That's legit. But you won't just wake up with having retained all of that knowledge, right? Why not? Okay, he's going to explain. Upon lore... Not memory, that is. Instinctive memory for the language of any elf is that of the time in which he speaks. The languages of other times, as of other peoples and places, he must learn consciously or deliberately store in mind as a thing separate from unpremeditated speech, the immediate and natural clothing of his thought. Not all the Eldar can do this, or do it readily and accurately. Only lore masters, specially concerned with lore of tongues, commit such things as, for example, the language of the period in which they are at that time, to, visual, to visible record, or to the storehouse of mental lore. Okay, so, uh, you see what he's saying here? So, and he goes on to explain a lot, I don't think, did I quote more of it? I, um, yeah, okay, I did. Let's just read this one, and then we'll talk about the whole thing. But it may be asked, will he not remember sounds? Right? So, okay, so let me pause. Let me pause and then we'll go into this, to this slide. Why wouldn't you remember your old native tongue as your old native tongue? And his answer to that is it's about elves' slightly peculiar relationship to language. Right? Um, the... They, remain, they retain in their thought the things that they saw and even the things that they heard before. He is differentiating um, he is differentiating between their thought and their language, the words into which like their words through which they shape their thought, right? Um, they retain in their thought in their mind what um, uh, they retain in their in their minds what they knew in their previous life but when they shape that thought into words they don't shape it into the words into which they shaped it back in the day 
they shape it into the language that they have learned in their second life. They shape it into their new native language. So even when they're reflecting on their old native language, they are speaking in their new native language about their old native language. They're not remembering in that language. And again, here, I, th the, I think the key to understanding what Tolkien's saying about it here, and, and those of you, I know there are several philologists uh, who have been with us here as we've been discussing this, and if I'm wrong about this, please correct me, but my understanding of this here is that Tolkien is, is placing a significant difference, distance rather, a significant distance between the thought and the words. And this, that gap between the thought and the words is going to be important at several near future points as well. Um, thought is not in language. The embodiment, the incarnation even, of thought into words that can be communicated to someone else is a separate process. It is not native to thought. Um, that is what Tolkien is asserting here. And that is why, that is what explains why the elves, the reborn elves, don't speak in their old native tongue. Um, because their old native tongue was not as, they didn't used to think in their old native tongue. They used to think in their thought, right? It was just the language is just the clothing that the thought puts on in order to go out in public, right? And now they're putting it into the new clothes, right, of their new native language. So now he replies to an objection. But it may be asked, will he not remember sounds? And will he not remember things that have been said to him and by him? Like, surely he could quote somebody, right, um, what they used to say, and by quoting them, he would therefore... Um, provide philological, like first-hand philological evidence uh, of his previous native tongue? The answer is yes and no. In the disembodied waiting, that is, in his time in Mandos, he had no language, for that requires a body and is not required without one. Chew on that for a second. That gap between thought and language means language is a bodily thing. If you didn't have a body, you would not need language. You would not use language. Language is alien to the mind. Language is only a utility of the body. If we had no bodies, we would have no language. This is why the Valar had no language and why the elves invented it. And when they met the elves... Notice this is what Tolkien sort of figured out in his very initial conception back in the Hlamas of the early 30s. Um, he had the Valar having a language, right? The Valian language, which then Orome teaches to, um, uh, to the elves, right? But later on, Tolkien changes his mind about that. He's like, no, the Valar wouldn't have language at all. Um, it would go the other way around. The language of the Valar would have been derived from the elf language because the elves have bodies. They're the ones who need, they're the first ones to need language. Um, nobody else ever needed language before the elves. That's why they're the first people ever to speak with words 
right? And once they hear them speaking with words, the Valar are like, oh yeah, okay, let's uh, let's do this thing, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, Let's go on. Let's see. Okay. Uh, okay. In the disembodied waiting, he had no language, for that requires a body and is not required without one, only thought. Through this interval, all memory is through the interval of the waiting, his time in Mandos, all memory of his former life has passed. It's part of the effect of Mandos. There is a, there is a forgetting. Like, remember the, the river Lethe, right? It's a thing, right? Like, you forget stuff from your former life. Um, all memory of his former life has passed. And it must therefore be reclothed. He will, of course, remember. So he's given back his memories in thought of his previous life, right? But he then has to reclothe those thoughts in new language. He will, of course, remember sounds. Like some of those memories might be memories of hearing somebody say something, right? And he might find words to describe those sounds that he heard long ago, even as he might describe light or colors or emotions. But, say the Eldar, language is not sounds. Things said or heard in language are remembered as thoughts or meanings and must be re-embodied in those modes of expression which at any time, which at any given time, a speaking creature uses without reflection. Anybody who has ever tried to repeat a conversation word for word will know what he's talking about here, right? We might retain, you might retain a very clear memory of what somebody said, but you are very likely to have um, retained that as thought or meaning, not as an actual memory of heard language. And so therefore, when you tell somebody what that other person said, you are unlikely to say it word for word identically correctly. It requires a special discipline. Like, you've got to practice doing that to actually memorize word for word, right? It can be done. You can build that, and there are many cultures that uh, do that kind of thing, um, but it's not automatic. The automatic thing. Um, so again, if you... Maybe if you were a philologist in your earlier life you will retain that philological lore that you got because you paid attention to these things, right? But if you weren't, if you didn't, then you're going to re-translate. You're going to re-embody those memories, those thoughts, into your new modes of expression. Um, uh, exactly, Bjorn Sonner. Uh English-speaking elves would quote their old selves uh, only with... Uh, I was like this rather than I said this. Yes, exactly. Um, exactly. Um, yep. Yep. That's exactly it. Okay. So, um, this is fascinating, isn't it? I mean, again, like, can't you tell Tolkien is on like his home ground here? And again, I would point out, um, there are many, many places in Tolkien's writings where we are hearing him spelling out theories that he has about language and how it works that he never published as an official academic publication, right? Um, he hadn't reached a, you know, he hadn't reached assertion level for them, so he didn't publish them. Um, but um, he might 
uh, he might surmise something. He might even judge something, but not feel comfortable publishing it, right? Uh, because he can't assert it. Publication is an assertion, after all, right? Um, so he... Um, but he's not shy about talking about it. And this strikes me as some of... Uh, one of the most direct examples of such that I can recall uh, in, um, uh, in, in Tolkien's... Uh, um, in Tolkien's works, right? But, um, okay, all right. And now, chapter nine. Okay, so I made a strong effort not to include every single paragraph uh, of the Asanwe Kenta in my slides, but I, um, um, I didn't... F okay, so hang on a second before we move on. Um... Jocelyn is saying, I'm struggling with that concept. I think the consciousness in my head is in language and my thoughts are in language. Jocelyn, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. The distinction that I would make... The distinction that I would make myself, and this is me, and I, you know, I have less philological knowledge uh, than Tolkien had when he was probably five, but, um, yeah, thank you, Bjorn Asanar is coming to my, my aid here, uh, and saying it's scientifically established that some people have inner linguistic monologues and some don't, um, and those on each side struggle to conceive of the experience of the other. Um, yes, um, I would say, um, Jocelyn, I too have linguistic monologues when I'm thinking about things, but I'd also say this, I, I think that I am aware if I reflect on an active embodiment that's happening there. Um, here's the comparison I would make. My wife is an extremely visual person. Um, she is almost as extreme on the visual end as I am on the audio end. Um, and she could never understand why I read so slowly. Compared to her, she read ridiculously fast. And um, she was shocked and appalled the day that I said, when I read text with my eyes silently, when I'm silently reading text, I am essentially reading aloud to myself. Like, I'm hearing my voice in my head reading it aloud. Or, if I'm reading something that I have an audiobook for, I might be hearing Rob Inglis's voice in my head, right? But I'm always... I'm hearing the sound of the words. Like, I'm sounding out the words in my own head um, as I am reading. Um, and, uh... Um, so... I'm aware... There are times when I have thoughts, like I, when I know something, or when I figure something out, or I see it, and then I embody it in language, sometimes just in my own head. Um, but like if I'm reflecting on it, I'll think it through, right? But I'm aware, again, this is my own experience, I'm aware of an act of embodying, 
there. I didn't think it, actually, in that. I might not fully understand it until I've worked it out that way, right? This is why I personally, I think best with my mouth, honestly. Like, I will honestly usually not really know what I think about something until I've talked about it with somebody and can talk it out. But that's just me doing aloud what I would be doing silently in my head, just like me reading a book aloud is the same exact process as me reading with my eyes. It's just whether or not I'm actually using my voice. Um, so, um, uh, so yeah, that, that idea. Yeah, exactly. Alana, that, I think that embodying concept, which, uh, which Tolkien is suggesting here about that difference between thought and language seems to me really crucial, right? Because I do think there is an, and maybe other people embody their thoughts in other ways. Somebody was just saying that, um, uh, it can be like music or something like that, um, in their heads. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I, um, I do think that there's even, so even for me who I'm very much a linguistic monologuer in my own head and I'm, uh, you know, I'm very extremely, you know, audio as I say, um, whereas if I, it was almost as shocking to me, by the way, um, when I was once several years ago watching a movie with my wife and the, um, captions were on, right? Like it was just one of those things where like you put it in and the captions came on and like, I didn't change that setting, but they did, you know, that happens sometimes anyway. So the captions were on and I was like, can we shut those off? It's really distracting to have that. And my wife was like, oh, I didn't really notice. It's always like that for me. And I'm like, wait, what? And she was like, yeah, when I hear people talking, I, I like, in order to understand them, I'm like, I'm seeing the words. <laughs> and I'm like, for real? And like, that was as weird to me as me trying to explain to her that I'm reading a book aloud to myself when I'm looking at it on the page. Um, and uh, she's like, yeah, whenever, I'm, whenever I hear people, I'm like, I, like, her mind translates it into written speech. Um, anyway, the mind is a weird thing, but that process that I, 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 even though, as I say, uh, I'm, I'm with you, Jocelyn, in having that same experience, but I do think that I can see what Tolkien is talking to that thought, which is indeed independent of language. Um, and, uh, that, um, uh, yeah, uh, that thought, which is independent of language, um, which needs to be embodied, whether it's embodied silently, whether it's embodied um, verb, you know, outwardly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Um, let's. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, So let's keep, let's keep moving forward. <laughs> Lots of people have thoughts about this, but, and yes, Christopher, it is, um, uh, I do think it is one of the things, I'm not saying that all t teachers would have to have this, but it is certainly true that one of the things that really helps me as a teacher is the fact that I think with my mouth, right? Like it's, it, it makes explaining an idea to someone else is to me almost exactly the same thing as understanding it. 
And unfortunately, the converse is often also true, right? That if I don't have anyone to explain it to, I have a hard time understanding it. Um, uh, uh, yes, yes. Um, uh, so, yeah, but yeah, it is certainly. Um, yeah. And it's why I love, uh, and, and seriously, I, as I said before, it's why I've learned so much, right? I would never have understood, uh, like the history of Middle Earth and everything is that we've, you know, that I've been teaching my way through. I would never have understood it half so well. Um, and almost every single class in exploring the Lord of the Rings, I am learning something that I did not know at all before. Um, because as we're talking about it, that's how my mind works. Um, but anyway, okay. All right, let's move on to chapter nine. Pengoav says that all minds, sama, plural, samar, are equal in status, though they differ in capacity and strength. A mind by its nature perceives another mind directly, but it cannot perceive more than the existence of another mind, as something other than itself, though of the same order, except by the will of both parties. Okay, so all minds are aware of other minds. That's fact number one. No matter what happens, a mind, one mind can perceive the existence of another mind. So sensing that there's another mind out there, that's an intrinsic quality of mind. Okay? First thing. Um, but the importance of will, this is crucial to this, I think, slightly later... Uh, understanding. Um, so I think this is later than what he was saying about word pictures before, about the Indemar, right? Um, he's refined those ideas somewhat, as I suggested earlier. Okay, so by the will of both parties. The degree of will, however, need not be the same in both parties. If we call one mind G for guest or comer, and the other H for host or receiver, then G must have full intention to inspect H or to inform it. Okay, so you can't do this by accident. You don't read somebody's mind by accident, right? You don't communicate to somebody telepathically by accident, right? You have to mean to do it. So that's, and, and fully mean to do it, right? You've got to be focused on it um, in order to do either, either to, to, to receive or to, you know, either to inspect, right, to gain information from them or to put information into, the, into that mind. Um, if you're initiating that, you've got to be thinking about it. But knowledge may be gained or imparted by G, even when H is not seeking or intending to impart or to learn. So you can receive stuff by accident or without your own knowledge, right? Um, the act of G, the guest, right, the actor, will be effective if H is simply open, lata, latie, openness. This distinction, he says, Pengalov says, is of the greatest importance. Okay, so we have to keep this in mind. Um, you have to actively will to read a mind or communicate to a mind. But um, <clears throat> if you are merely open, if you are in a general state of openness, right, then you, um, then you're, then you can receive or give, right? Um, it's like a, it's like a, you know, you can leave the door to your house unlocked and anybody can come in, but you're not going to enter into a house unless you mean to, right? Okay, 
Cool. That's important. Openness is the natural or simple state, Indo, of a mind that is not otherwise engaged. So a mind is naturally open, unless it's otherwise engaged. Remember, this is where it come back, comes back to the quiet mind can most easily divine stuff, right? Um, okay. In Arda Unmarred, that is, in ideal conditions, free from evil, openness would be the normal state. Everybody would be open all the time. Nobody locks their doors in Arda Unmarred, right? I mean, there are no deadbolts in Arda Unmarred. That makes sense. Nonetheless, any mind may be closed, pata. This requires an act of conscious will. Unwill. I love the word unwill. Avenir. It may be made against G, against G and some others, or be a total retreat into privacy. Aqua patie. Um, uh, you know... You ever been to one of those really fancy uh, summer beach house communities where everybody gives a cute name to their little beach cottage, right? In the unlikely event I were ever to purchase a beach house, I think I would name it Aquapatier. <laughs> I think that's what I would want to. That's what I would want to name it. Um, total retreat into privacy. Um, okay, anyway. Wouldn't that be a good beach house name? I think it'd be a good beach house name. Um, okay, uh, anyway. Um, you can be, you can have unwilled directly to, like, only you, right? So the lock that you can put on the door of your mind house, right, uh, is pretty subtle, right? You can, uh, you can let everybody but that guy in, right? Um, you can keep out that guy and all of his sketchy friends, or you can keep everybody out, right? Um, uh, Chad, you're right. Lost Play would be a pretty good name for a beach house, too. Yeah, that would be. That would be. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, Although in Artem Unmarred, openness is the normal state, every mind has, from its first making as an individual, the right to close. And it has absolute power to make this effective by will. Nothing can penetrate the barrier of unwill. I probably read that sentence like eight times when I first read this. I was like, nothing? Nothing can penetrate the barrier of unwill. Nothing. Okay. Okay. Um, that's really interesting. Right, but that's unequivocal and italicized, too. Nothing can penetrate the barrier of unwill. All right. Well, let's move on with that understanding. Okay. The incarnates have, by the nature of sama, the nature of, of mind, how mind works, the same faculties, but their perception is dimmed by the Hroa, for their Fea is united to their Hroa, and its normal procedure is through the Hroa, which is in itself a part of Ea, without thought. The dimming is indeed double, for thought has to pass one mantle of Hroa and penetrate another. For this reason, in incarnates, transmission of thought requires strengthening to be effective. So, you can communicate straight from mind to mind, but 
it's a problem because we um uh it's a problem because we we have uh bodies and our fea our spirits are well, we have minds right just like the what is what he was saying about minds is true of our minds too but they're all um they're all connected to all this meat, right? There's all this, uh, there's this roa, right? All this stuff of Ea about us, which dims our receptivity and our transmission as well, right? It can be done, but if it's to be done among incarnates, transmission of thought requires strengthening to be effective. Strengthening can be by affinity, by urgency, or by authority. Affinity may be due to kinship. Okay, hang on a second. Uh, Jocelyn says, what if one mind is stronger than the others? Can it overrule the closed will? No. Nothing can overrule the closed will. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Nothing. That is absolute, he says. It is absolute. No mind can be forced. No mind that is closed can be forced by anyone or anything. Okay. Strengthening. How do you strengthen it? So this is uh, um, uh, uh, practical, right, for incarnates, if we want to do telepathy. Affinity may be due to kinship, for this may increase the likeness of Hroa to Hroa, and so the concerns and modes of thought of the indwelling Thayar. Okay, so if, uh, if if, 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 if we're related, right, if we're siblings or maybe we're twins, right, Telepathy among twins, now that's much easier, right? Because their hroa are very, very similar, indeed functionally identical, um, and so their concerns and modes of thought of their indwelling fear are also going to be very similar, and so therefore it just makes it easier to be able to do that kind of thing. Kinship is also normally accompanied by love and sympathy. A sympathy, affinity may come simply from love and friendship which is likeness or affinity of Thea to Thea. So two people who love one another very strongly also have affinity because their Thayar are in affinity, in likeness to each other, right? They're connected to each other. Um, Urgency is imparted by great need of the sender, as in joy, grief, or fear. And if these things are in any degree shared by the receiver, if the receiver is also experiencing the same urgency, the thought is the clearer received. Authority may also lend force to the thought of one who has a duty towards another, or of any ruler who has a right to issue commands or to seek the truth for the good of others. Okay, so in my subtitle, I've given two examples, two famous examples of literary telepathy, right? One, of course, is Jane Eyre. How is it that Jane Eyre is able telepathically to communicate to Mr. Rochester over the miles? Combination of affinity and urgency, right? There was love between them and great urgency, right? And uh, thus, there you go. So uh, uh, Charlotte Bronte clearly knew this, right, as well. Um, How about Aragorn? When do we see Aragorn doing this? The most clear example of um, the most clear example of Aragorn communicating telepathically. I'm thinking of the houses of the healing, right? We see him communicating 
telepathically with Faramir and with Aragorn, Aragorn, with Eowyn, right? With, with Faramir and with Eowyn and with Mary, though more briefly, right? Doesn't take quite so much. Um, but um, how does that work? Authority, obviously. With Faramir, especially, authority. Urgency, also, right? Aragorn's pretty urgent, right? He's urgently trying to save their lives. He's afraid that they're going to die. So grief, fear, both involved, right? Uh, there as well. There's no affinity between um, Aragorn and Faramir. They've never met, right? Um, they're going to develop some affinity pretty quickly, right? But they've never met each other before. They have no affinity. Um, and their relation to each other is very, very distant indeed, right? Um, but there's great urgency and very great authority. And what is it that Faramir says as soon as he wakes up? You have called. I come. Right? He's responding to authority. Right? Eowyn. Notice what Aragorn does with Eowyn. Right? He has authority there too, though it's not as strong as with Faramir. Right? Um, with Faramir, he can say, soldier, <laughs> get over here. Right? I am your king. Uh, you are a man of Gondor and you are the steward of Gondor. Um, front and center. <laughs> right? Uh, he can say that. He, yeah, he has some authority over Eowyn, but it's not quite the same. There's affinity. Um, he has affection for Eowyn, and Eowyn has love for him, right? So he, he has urgency, he has some authority, he has some affinity, but notice what he does. He immediately, he calls her, but then he, he has Amir call her, right? Where the affinity is much, much greater. Right, her brother, who loves her very much, so he has a he, he starts it right with his authority. He's got some of each, of affinity, urgency, and authority, and he um, uh, he. But then he has Amir seal the deal, right, with his vastly superior um, affinity. Um, pretty cool, right? By the way, this like is just one of the things that makes this essay so cool. Like, look, I love it when Tolkien does retcon, right? I love it when Tolkien does retcon. When Tolkien thinks of new things and then finds like super clever ways to go back and make it work with the text of the Lord of the Rings, even when like perhaps in the case of bearded statues, it's pretty clear that he wasn't thinking that at the time, right? But he can make it work and make up a story. Um, I love it, right? I, I, I love it when Tolkien does that. That's tremendously fun. Who doesn't enjoy that? But what he's doing here, right, when he can develop a system, which he had not developed before, but develop a system which explains things which had it not been invented to explain, right? When he can do this kind of thing, um, where now I'm looking, you look back at the Houses of Healing and you're like, yeah, of course, now I understand exactly how it worked, right? Um, not because he was thinking this at the time, but because um, he has developed and explained this system that fits what he did so well um, that, uh, uh, that it, just, it, just, it just, it opens it up, right? So cool. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, here, Pengamoth adds a long note 
on the use of Hoar by the Valar. Okay, now this is the passage that uh, um, made me feel better about um, uh, about the uh, Istari thing. Okay. A long note on the use of Hroar by the Valar. In brief, he says, that though in origin a self-arraying, it may tend to approach the state of incarnation, especially with the lesser members of that order, the Maiar. Quoting from Pengalov now, It is said that the longer and the more the same Hroa is used, the greater is the bond of habit, and the less do the self-arrayed desire to leave it. As raiment may soon cease to be adornment and becomes, as is said in the tongues of both elves and men, a habit, a customary garb. Or, if among elves and men it be worn to mitigate heat or cold, it soon makes the clad body less able to endure these things when naked. You get used to your clothing, right? Pengalov also cites the opinion notice that word, right? Also notes, cites the opinion, it's not an assertion, the opinion that if a spirit, that is one of those not embodied by creation, uses a hroa for the furtherance of its personal purposes, or still more, for the enjoyment of bodily faculties, it finds it increasingly difficult to operate without the hroa. The things that are most binding are those that the incarnate have to do that in the incarnate have to do with the life of the Hroa itself, its sustenance and its propagation. Thus, eating and drinking are binding, but not the delight in beauty of sound or form. Most binding is begetting or conceiving. Melian is bound to her Hroa. And remember, this comes back to that little note that we had earlier on, um, back in part one, about why Melian why the cha Melian's chains were broken, right? Um, Melian kicked the Hroa habit, right? Um, Melian got seriously addicted to her Hroa when she marries Thingol, right? She got, um, um, but she kicks the habit, right? She goes cold turkey from her Hroa when her husband dies and Luthien's already left the world, right? So... Um, I know she's come back into it, but still. Um, when her husband dies, she kicks the habit. She gives up her roa at that point, but she was bound to it beforehand because the enjoyment of bodily faculties. She was eating, drinking, conceiving, right? Presumably having marital discourse with her husband, right? Um, and a body, so the bodies that are formed, they're real bodies, they're physical bodies, right? When the Valar and the Maiar embody themselves, they are physical bodies. So what's the difference between an incarnate body like the Astari have and the um, self-arraying that the Valar and Maiar can do? Well, self-arraying, you can still take it off. Right? It's not essential to you. You can still take it off without doing any harm to your fea, right? to your spirit. But if you bind yourself, you can bind yourself to your hroa, and the more you use it, the more it's going to become a habit. right? Um, and that's really interesting. Right? Um, they become... So Melian is the queer example, 
right? Um, and she became almost one of the incarnates, right? She's still a Maiar. That hasn't changed. Her Fea hasn't changed, really. But it has become bound to this Roa that she can't just take it on and off now anymore, right? In fact, she can't and doesn't take it off until those the ties that are binding her to uh, the physical life are gone. Um, okay. Very interesting. Um, the great Valar do not do these things. They beget not, neither do they eat or drink. N neither do they eat and drink, save at the high Asari festivals, in token of their lordship and indwelling of Arda, and for the blessing of the sustenance of the children. So, once a year, Valian year, the Valar do in fact embody themselves and eat and drink. So, physical eating and drinking happen. The Valar do that once a year at the festivals. Um, and it's a particular, like it's important that they do that, right? Uh, it's meaningful, I should say, that they do that. Um, in token of their lordship and indwelling of Arda and for the blessing of the sustenance of the children. Um, it's a particular exception that they make, but normally otherwise they don't eat. If they did, if they were in the custom of embodying themselves every day to have a little snack, right, then they would become bound to their proar. But they don't do that. Melkor alone of the great became at last bound to a bodily form. But that was because of the use that he had made of this in his purpose to become Lord of the Incarnate and of the great evils that he did in the visible body. Also, he had dissipated his native powers in the control of his agents and servants so that he became in the end in himself and without their support a weakened thing, consumed by hate and unable to restore himself from the state in which he had fallen. He lacked the juice anymore to just become a spirit. And notice... Um, there are several times, and again, this is another one of those things which, when you take it back to his older texts, it fits so beautifully, right? Um, both Melkor and Sauron at different times become imprisoned in their forms, or incapable of taking a, an attractive form again, right? Um, now we see how that works, how they get bound to a, a particular proa, right? A particular form. Um, even his visible form he could no longer master, so that its hideousness could not any longer be masked, and it showed forth the evil of his mind. It kind of works both ways, right? His mind gets bound to a proa, but his proa is bound to be a reflection of his, uh, of his fea, right? Um, it has to be ugly. So it was also with even some of his greatest servants, as in these later days we see. They became wedded to the forms of their evil deeds, and if these bodies were taken from them or destroyed, they were nullified, until they had rebuilt a semblance of their former habitations, with which they could continue the evil courses in which they had become fixed. Okay, so... Who are we talking about? Sauron, obviously. Right? There at the end, some of his greater servants, they became wedded to the forms of their evil deeds, 
and if these bodies were taken from them or destroyed, they were nullified until they rebuilt a semblance of their former habitations. We are talking about Sauron, Isildur, and the long process of the, you know, first couple millennia of the Third Age, right? That's what we're talking about here. Um, we're definitely also talking about Balrogs, clearly. The Balrog is clearly corporeal, right? Obviously, it wouldn't fall at all, right? I mean, like, again, if something is an incorporeal spirit, a trap that leads it to plummet into the abyss, probably not going to work, right? It clearly has a body, a physical body that has weight. Um, or mass, I suppose I should say. Weight also. Um, and apparently, it was bound to that physical form so that when that body was destroyed by Gandalf, it was nullified, right? The Balrog's done, right? Just as Saruman is done. Now, he was wedded to his body for a different reason, right? Um, incarnated uh, in the way... That, but again, without his body, he's, he's not destroyed, right? He's still floating off into the distance, but he's, he's nullified, right? Sauron is going to get nullified at the end of The Lord of the Rings, Right. Um, and that has much to do, of course, the Ring of Power complicates that situation a little bit. But, um, uh, but yeah, anyway, um, now I see folks asking about um, dragons. I'm not convinced about dragons. I don't think dragons are like this. Dragons, I do not believe to have been Meyer who just clothed themselves in, in uh, reptilian flesh. Um, I don't think so. Do they have Fear? Yeah. Well, yeah. They definitely do. Um, they can speak and do things and cause amnesia and all the things we see Glaurung do, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they... that Glaurung was just a Maiar who clothed himself in dragon shape. Um, that's not how he's... To, he's bred by Morgoth. There's... I think they're, they're actual animals. I think that Glaurung has animal DNA in ways the Balrog would not have like incarnate uh, human DNA or elf DNA or animal DNA, right? But dragons I think have animal DNA. Werewolves too. Werewolves have wolf DNA. Um and the whole werewolf concept seems to be that there are physical wolves and then there are spirits that are bound to them. Um and that's not the way it's supposed to work. That's meant to be a deviant situation. Um, that's bad. It's wicked to bind a spirit to an animal like that. Um, okay. All right. Still with him? Okay. I knew we weren't going to finish, but let me just peek ahead. What's next? Foresight. Oh, okay. Yeah, I want to do foresight, but we're going to stop here. We're not going to get there. Ungoliant. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Ungoliant. Perfect. Ungoliant takes spider shape, and she seems to be bound to that spider shape. Notice, Ilana, that Ungoliant can mate with other spider monsters. Like, there's another spider monster out there, apparently, right? And she can mate with a spider monster uh, in order to have. So, Shelob is. Uh, on her dad's side, uh, right, um, uh, the, the uh, 100, you know, she's 
au natural spider monster, right? Um, and 50% ungoliant, right? Uh, 50% whatever ungoliant was. Um, if I agree, Carrie, there was one until she made it. Yeah, you're, I, I, I agree. I doubt uh, that Sheila's dad survived that experience, uh, presumably. Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, Ungoliant would have been bound in spider form. Uh, uh, that may, would make sense, um, like... In, in some of the ways we're seeing here. I don't think necessarily Ungoliant is included in some of the greatest of Melkor's servants, um, but maybe. I, but I think, as in these later days, we see that, to me, says Sauron Balor.